Marvel is redoing Heroes Reborn, which is the event in the 90s that caused their company to go bankrupt. So that's interesting. Uh, should I take a shot? Is there like a game involved in this? Where Only I if should... you see a clone. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. And I'm Iz, your cryptid guest star. <laughs> We're two, well, today, three comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And today, to continue our Pride Month series, we thought we'd snag an old friend to talk about some less mainstream forms of comics, one that's particularly popular in the LGBTQ plus community. Hi, Iz. Happy to have you. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and your experience with comics and how we ended up coercing you onto this podcast? Uh, you say coerce, like you actually had to coerce me. And like the fact you guys told me you were doing a podcast and I said, okay, when do I get to guest star? Uh, <laughs> demanding my, there wasn't a question of like, could I? I, I just elbowed my way in to make room. I'm parting the Red Sea, come let me through. Um, much like Moses, but not religious and a lesbian. Um, so I have a history reading comics since high school. I mostly read DC back in the day. Uh, a lot of Batman, Batman, more Batman, Batman with the side of Nightwing, Batman. I also did some Marvel comics. I really enjoyed Miss Marvel for a bit, Silk, Journey into Mystery, The Young Avengers and comics like that. But once I got into college, I got more interested in independent work and eventually designed, which I started creating my senior year and reading in that. That's really awesome. We brought you here to talk about zines, particularly LGBT zines, because anyone who's walked into an independent bookstore might have noticed gays really like zines. Yeah, zines, zines are pretty gay. I mean, there are a lot of things. Zines, for those who don't know, are basically independently published comic strips and magazines. For an example, it's usually stuff that is made, printed, and distributed by the creator. So unlike DC and Marvel, when you make your comic and write a script and it goes to like a letter and then they put it through the printer and then they distribute it through Diamond, instead that's all one person. Zines can come in various batches. Sometimes there can be only five issues of a zine of the same zine, and sometimes there could be 500 copies of the same zine. The idea is it's just independent work, and it can be done as a team, as a group. It can have pictures. It doesn't have to have pictures. You might notice these rules are very contradictory, and that's because zines themselves are very contradictory. They're very much a form of self-expression. The whole general idea is that if a corporation's making it, it's probably not a zine. The whole contradictory nature might actually make zines fit in more with mainstream comics than anything else just for the fact that as this podcast has gone over and as we have talked about many a time comics love to contradict themselves in just true. about every way i think it's important to mention is because you've been a little out of the mainstream comics scene for a little bit diamond no longer distributes for dc i totally forgot about that i can't believe i forgot this blessed information that's like forgetting that Jesus was born on, well, he wasn't actually born on Christmas, but you understand the metaphor. I could have come up with a better metaphor. It's also worth pointing out that zines are something that 
can have either small Im- local impact, so from fan to fan, or they can be something that gets a wider distribution. Usually if something's really popular, it can catch on a bit more and that person has the option of publishing more of that zine to a wider audience by word of mouth. Yeah, the internet has really made that possible. One of my recs, actually, that I'm going to get back to for shadowing is a sign of that factory that blew up on the internet. And later I saw it a lot in the comic scene. I bought a physical copy. You see this a lot with zines that kind of hit Twitter or hit sort of websites because zines are usually, keyword, on the shorter side. Sometimes they can just be one collected story. And so that makes them pretty easy to distribute via small internet spaces. So instead of having to like flip through multiple pages like a webcomic, it's just maybe one or two images. You can put that in a zine pretty easily and comic centers and comic cons have made independent producers able to have their own sort of tables uh, along with zine fests, which are, think of zine fests like Artist Alley for Comic Con, but it's just Artist Alley and it's just independent comic makers. That sounds really awesome, honestly. <laughs> it is one of those things where zines are have a really interesting and kind of complicated little history of their own like being involved in a lot of underground movements like alongside underground newspapers particularly in anarchist and anti-war movements a lot of that got circulated through the anti-vietnam circles in the 60s and 70s but they also have because of very specific rules that the united states postal service had about the circulation of lgbt content zines became a very early way to distribute lgbt content because it did not typically go through the mail unlike traditional magazines or other formats zines also for that reason are popular for sexual health and other topics that could not be circulated through the mail under certain rules about the distribution of quote-unquote pornographic materials although again that was referring to anything lgbt or anything to do with sexual health Yeah, ACT UP, the famous AIDS activist movement, had their own zine called YELL. They only published a couple issues from what I could tell in the archives, but those issues were raising awareness about HIV, safe sex, and things like that, especially during the HIV and AIDS awareness movement and activism movement for safe and fair healthcare. There wasn't a lot of information on how to have safe sex if you were queer. A lot of it was basically, if any at all, was about maybe heterosexual couples. People used to call HIV and AIDS, unfortunately, the gay plague because homophobia is unfortunately an illness that won't go away. But what happened is that because of that stigma, a lot of this news had to be transferred via leaflets, handouts. If you go to the Queer Zion Archive Project, which comes out of Milwaukee, they have a lot of issues from the ACT UP movement. You can look at through their archive. I pulled them up. They have things like pamphlets. They have copies of Yale. They have a mission statement folio. They have stickers. And one of my personal favorites is they have a demo flyer from the RNC that has a picture of George H.W. Bush saying, top this monster with the death count, which is a flyer they passed out at the RNC. It says RNC demo flyer, which makes me think, yeah, it says Houston, Texas, 1992. Act up. I could talk about ACT UP outside of zines a lot. They did a lot of interesting things. There's another picture of Tommy Thompson, who I believe is one of our famous homophobic people. And it's a public health menace. They were big on demonstrative work and zines were the perfect way to do that because people would pass around, usually trade zines for zines in zine culture. If you don't have the money to buy a zine or currency, sometimes in zine communities, you just trade them. After you're done reading an issue, you're supposed to give it to a friend and they're supposed to give you another one, making them a great way to distribute health information or any information, really. So one of the things that 
I know got me aware of zine culture and was sort of like my entrance into these sorts of things is actually wasn't from Western comics, but was actually my, my manga and anime phase where I started going to, you know, some smaller conventions for that. And as a result, I was actually on the floor, I was able to buy doujinshi, which are the manga or Japanese equivalent to what we call zines over here in the States. And because of that, I actually kind of got addicted to some of them like some of them would provide better content for my interests especially queer interests they would provide more content for that and especially specific ships more so than the actual series so that kind of blossomed into being a part of these internet communities that were dedicated more to these sort of fan universes and I also became aware of manhua which are the Chinese version And what's really special about these sorts of Eastern countries takes on zines is that it's not illegal to distribute or sell them for profit. In fact, a lot of current famous mangaka are products of really popular fanzines of their own. So a lot of them would actually get their start with being a part of these fan communities, which is, you know, hugely different from what it's like in America, where you can, a lot of the zines for profit or that grow in popularity would have to be personal IP or enough in the not going to uh, have Disney, you know, down your throat or anything. Beware the gavel of the House of Mouse here in Mouseport. Copyright law, reign supreme. It's really interesting to think about, actually, just the contrast there. Because zines have always, before the internet really became the house of fandom content, zines were the preferred form of fan fiction. And, of course, fan fiction has always had queer elements to it. And I remember really early in my beginnings of beginning to research fandom culture as a history, I encountered stories about things like Han Solo, Luke Skywalker slash zines getting sued and shut down hard by Lucasfilm. Just like that kind of historic bent to the shutting down of queer fandom spaces, which was just really interesting. And also kind of circling all the way back to something you said earlier is about the idea of the zines themselves being a currency that you trade with it actually really harkens back to the early days of comic books when children would like each kid on the block would buy one comic and then everybody would trade comics which was actually part of moral complaints about comic books in Frederick Wertham in particular Seduction of the Innocent because comic books were becoming a currency independent of adult supervision So it was something that was seen as another subversive element of a comic. And that's kind of become less of a thing now that comics have become collector's items. But it used to be a huge part of comic culture. Yeah, if you go to a zine fest, tables sometimes will say trades welcome. Not everyone is up for trades, depending on what they make and how much production value it took. But if someone has a trades welcome, usually you can trade them a zine for another zine. I've gone to quite a few and done 
quite a few trades. They're a lot of fun, especially because you can get just all sorts of really random stuff. A lot of times there are zine libraries now that are hosted in different places where you can like browse collections of different kinds of zines and they can really cater from everything. I have seen all sorts of zines on all sorts of topics on race, on religion, on queer issues, of course, a lot of feminist content in zines, especially when it comes to feminist views, more punk attitudes, more butch attitudes. And then uh, there's even zines about gun control. I think one of the favorite ones I stumbled upon was called uh, How to Talk to Your Cat About Safe Gun Control in America. It's pretty good. For fanzines, actually, some of the earliest fanzines were Kirk and Spock fan fiction that were made, published, and then distributed, especially through sort of like at conventions, you know, spreading around these little fanzines of the slash content, you know, just between people. But, you know, just like spreading these things around and going, I read the story already, we should swap it for this story. Because there was no online space to read these. You had to just share your library with people and hope your work got out there. It's one of those things where being, being people involved in fandom spaces watching the evolution of fandom zines in particular uh, move from something that was rare and always and generally were being done the deliberate distinction of being printed at cost and distributed Mm -hmm. at cost to things like charity zines and eventually even for-profit zines and it's watching that evolution uh, particularly in queer corners of the community is really fascinating because for so long when things are for free or at cost it's less objectionable uh, in certain circles especially if you are using someone else's copyrighted content and the argument over transformative works is found generally to have less water if you are making a profit off it it's also worth pointing out that sometimes a lot of fan content is difficult to share especially if it's something that you want to possibly use for your own career if you're trying to go from fandom spaces to actual content specifically because people in the industry get very nervous about accepting any sort of fan content and there's a variety of reasons mostly the legal one is what people are most familiar with you know what if we release a story and people think that we stole it from some fandom zine or some fan fiction when that always has seemed kind of strange to me because as we've gone over and say our dark phoenix episode fans have always just kind of gone up to creators in conventions and shared their ideas that's what got Kurt Busick into comics was he was a teenager that basically bugged John Byrne and Chris Clairvont with his speculation of how to get Jean Grey back alive I mean but the thing with comics in particular is who there are so few people in the comic industry who have never had to work with someone else's creation maybe Stan Lee <laughs> maybe even then it's like it gets complicated because then you get into like jack kirby and and steve ditko's contributions but like everyone is working with someone else's creation so you could argue literally everything in comics after like 1950 is fan fiction the thing that's interesting i think and people are putting this out is that people who 
tend to write fan fiction are generally not people who are really big in the comics community. It's a lot of people of color. It's a lot of women. It's a lot of non-binary people. It's a lot of queer people. And comics, even though there has been more diversity recently, comics are still pretty white, straight and male. It's better. It's better. The idea of what someone's work is official and what is silly childish ramblings can often be found down, down that divide. I still find it really interesting. But it's all about where what kind of fan content you create certain kinds of fan content have always been kind of acceptable and flattering everybody likes to see a cool pin art of their character every everyone likes to see a real you know with exceptions of certain male marvel people uh like to see an accurate cosplay of one of their character designs but it's when the work gets queer or subversive or transformative in a way that the person is not comfortable with that it becomes or that is seen as threatening the profit of the original that it becomes less acceptable and that's always the thing where and i think that's where zines kind of come back into play because zines do not have an inherent profit motivation and they are they are part of a lot of different aspects of all of this fandom history, but they're also part of the mainstream comic history too, because they're not just fan content. They're also stories in their own right. And a lot of, and they have indie scenes, their own stories and all of that. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about the kind of different ways that zines are functioning as a different form of comics, not quite web comics. Like you say, they have a lot, they have some, more traditional medium aspects to them. Yeah, I forgot to completely talk about what zines are made of. Zines are often made of cheap materials. You can make high quality zines if you want and no one will be stopping you. But a lot of zines back in the day were made on printer paper, just like $1, like not $1, that's too much money. It's like cents on just cheap printer paper that they would fold and then like cut maybe the top and you have a four page line done. Sometimes staples will be involved. Sometimes you'd find them yourself with needle and string. There are zines that are being sold these days that are professionally made with fancy glossy paper and stuff just for presentation. But if you go to a zine fest and you just have printer paper that you copied and like folded together, no one's going to laugh you out. And that's really cool. And the, the lower barrier of entry, I think, is part of what makes zines so much more inclusive for the, for the LGBT community in particular. Don't need no money, just need a paper and pen. And maybe some creativity. That could help. Only a little. Just a little. Yeah, I mean, it's not like DC or Marvel has too much of it these days. Oh. Is there anything else we wanted to talk about zines? So or- I would like to add one thing, which is that zines are often a, for lack of a better term, they're often a safe place for people to reach out in communities that are more fringe as well. Back in the day, you know, LGBTQIA was considered fringe and probably to a lot of people still is, but it's also a good way of connecting with people who are more not mainstreamed, such as the furry community, BDSM, so many other communities that I would argue are probably not considered marginalized, but uh, it's a way of connecting with people in a lot of ways that, you know, it's, it's a good thing to encourage people to do. And if people haven't explored zines and stuff, it's often a good way to sort of test how you feel about certain things. 
And I would encourage people to be open-minded and also to be kind to the people who put hard work and effort into these creations because they make zines not with an audience in mind, but with a passion in mind. And whether or not that passion matches your particular passion, that's a lot of work, that's a lot of effort, and that's a lot of love that went into something, and that deserves respect all of its own. So, you know, be kind to your design creators. Yeah, and I'm again going to suggest, like, if you can't make it to a Comic-Con or, a, or a, zine, a zine fest or any of those other methods, I really and you're interested in them, first I'd suggest checking out some of your favorite online artists. A lot of them will have online zine collections available somewhere. And I'd also suggest checking out your local bookstore. A few years ago, I lived in a place where the local bookstore had a lot of prison liberation zines, a lot of abolition zines, and a lot of similar topics where they were talking about really important issues and their, uh, through their zine collection, which they hosted and promoted there through, for, through local artists. And they're not unique in that. A lot of local independent bookstores will promote local artists who are talking about important issues through their zines. A lot of your local uh, comic book stores will also have zines. If you can, zine makers often go to comic book stores and offer to give, sell their stock there. And some of them say yes. So just ask them where they keep the independent and local comics. A lot of places have a stack or two. Although zines will be pretty regional, like we've mentioned, there are still a lot of really good ones that get wider circulation. And, uh, and as such, uh, we've, uh, you know, there are some that are more widely available, which is my way of saying we are going to be segueing into our recommendation section. So is, as you know, since you're probably our most devoted listener, <laughs> every week we end the show talking about comics or in this case, zines we've read and enjoyed on topic or off. And we think uh, that we think people would enjoy. And I'm really excited to hear what you've got. Yes, I would like to, in the spirit of zines being about political movements, activism, I don't have a queer zine, but I have a very important zine uh, called, you might have seen on Twitter, called Your Black Friend by Ben Passmore. Uh, this comic is about being Black in the United States, about racism, race, friendship, and alienation, according to his own summary, and I highly recommend reading it. It's very important work. It's beautifully drawn in full color, and it's worth every second of your time. Uh, you can buy it on, if you just Google your black friend by Ben Passmore, you can find it, read it and purchase it. Awesome. So I'm uh, for a queer modern comic book rec this time. I am once again, jump, uh, fully jumping into the world of Greg Rucka. And I went for a character who we actually talked about a few episodes ago for our history of queer, queer superhero characters, Kate Kane. Uh, and particularly Batwoman Elegy. Uh, Elegy is actually a run on Detective Comics from issues 854 through 860, but it's collected as a Batwoman book and for good reason. It's the story of Kate Kane, her backstory, and her current adventure fighting a mysterious woman known as Alice. Uh, the art by G.H. Williams III is absolutely gorgeous and the st story is compelling and it, the, the overall storyline does a great job exploring Kate, her sexuality, and her relationships over the course of these issues. 
If you read the original comics rather than the collected version, you also get a backup story about uh, about Kate's sometimes girlfriend, Renee Montoya, in a series called The Question Pipeline, which is also worth a read if you can find it, but LED is absolutely worth it on its own. So uh, for my rec, I wanted to uh, talk about something that's something of an ascended zine. And if I ever get my way, it will eventually have its own episode. Uh, so back in the 70s, there was a fanzine that was circulating in the furry community. And it uh, led to a breakout character known as Usagi Yojimbo. Uh, Usagi Yojimbo is uh, the story of a titular anthropomorphic rabbit in feudal Japan named Usagi Miyamoto and is drawn and written for the past 50 years by one man, Stan Saki, a a Japanese-American comic artist and writer who has been publishing a single series for over over 50 years at this point it is a amazing story it's one of those that always makes you sound really snobbish when you uh talk about how your favorite comic is a independently produced black and white samurai comic but uh it's about rabbits and other animals and it actually teaches you japanese history it actually teaches you a lot about culture and uh, goes through historical events. And the story in particular I want to recommend since, you know, there's hundreds of issues at this point is uh, the storyline Grass Cutter. While I argue that Grass Cutter is best read, you know, by reading everything from number one to that arc, it is stand- a standalone arc. It brings together every character, every storyline, every minor plot to that point in together for a battle to the death for all of these characters that you've really come to love over the course of hundreds of issues and uh, has arguably one of the most terrifying villains in comics uh, in it. So I recommend uh, Grass Cutter to anyone who wants to... Uh, read something and sound artsy fartsy. <laughs> I'm surprised it took you that long to wreck that one. I know, I know. you've been sitting on that one for a bit. I have. The turtles? Turtles are... Sorry, yeah. he always uses the turtles. Well, uh, I mean, uh, Peter Laird and uh, Kevin Eastman are really good friends with Stan Sake and uh, they they will do crossovers like, yeah, not annually, but it's at least once a decade. As in the crossovers, I'm like this is the content I'm here for. Uh-huh. Yes, bring yes. it on. Comics were all about uh, sorry, ideas. Steph, uh, just so you know, uh, Isagi Yojimbo and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles technically technically exist in the same universe. And, so wait, are uh, you saying but the Ninja Turtles also share a universe with Daredevil? So are yeah. you saying there is a furry universe that is technically canon in all of those universes? Yes. Yes. I was a bad went there once. God, okay. Um, and actually, actually, Isagi will show up in most uh, Ninja Turtle cartoons. 
including the uh, ape cartoon and the, the 2000s who, cartoon. Since this is an audio medium, I'm going to describe Steph's face. Uh, her head is fully in her hands. And she's staring through her fingers blankly at her microphone uh, as she comprehends the fact that there is a dark, dark furry underbelly to the Marvel Universe. It just and it um, is very dark. It is a very it is a very dark and murder series. Very murder. Right. For Lots those who are uh, who, because most people will not have be familiar with the, this particular context, I want to mention that one of the first things that is and Brooke did upon becoming friends with me was attempt to get me into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. As we should have, we are good friends. Yes, we're amazing friends, and yeah. that's what good friends do. Hey, Brooklyn, what's your favorite turtle? Um, Michelangelo. Valid. Donna, I tell you. Steph, have you picked a favorite turtle yet? Uh, <laughs> is she's resisting? She's been resisting for years. Uh, we haven't. You can just her pick yet. a color. We, well, I already picked Don though. Purple's already her color. I've kind of stolen it. I don't know. Oh, she's gonna be a Leonardo fan. Don't even. He's the oh, leader yeah. one, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Like she's him. gonna be a Leo. Leo, like Leo him. likes to do a decimal Leo's- system. Yeah, you'd be a Leo. Leo and Mikey are also the ones that are most likely canonically queer. So yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Don is a ladies man in a way that is aggressive and uh, consistent in all continuities. Yes, he's a nerd ladies man. Yeah, he's the ladies man. All right, and there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or a rating, or tell a friend to spread the word. Uh, thanks for joining us, Is. If people on the internet want to find you, where should they go? Um, I can be found on Twitter at goodluckis and on Tumblr at goodluckdetective if you so wish to find me. It's all fan nonsense, uh, joining your own risk. And the only plugging I really have to do is say, get your COVID vaccine. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about your favorite underground printing presses, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. that Seth is going to completely censor us <laughs> and remove our very important ninja themed animal talk uh, conversation i'll probably just uh, cut it short because i will need to find because because the, the segue will need to happen i think you should keep in the line where i was describing your face to realize that Mar- marvel has a dark deep seated furry underbelly so i think that line was fantastic <laughs>